Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Navarre Beach, Florida, uh, where my family and I continue our remote school, remote work adventure. On the other end of that spectrum, I am thrilled to host Diane McGillivray, who leads the advancement organization at Northeastern University. And Diane is coming in live from her office in Boston, where she has worked every single day since June 1st. Not too many people can say that. Diane, welcome to the Race Podcast. Thank you, Brent. And uh, while I'm super happy to be in my office um, on campus, I'm also a little envious as I look out at the snow covering the ground of uh, your location in Florida. So um, I hope you're having a warm and, uh, and sunny day. Well, I just got a text message from my wife and, and our three boys before we went live. Uh, they are out at the Navarre Beach Fishing Pier, which is the largest fishing pier on the entire Gulf of Mexico. So they're doing that. I'm recording a podcast. We're all doing great. So uh, we're, we're really happy to be here. But tell me a little bit more in a time of remote work, remote everything, quarantine. You've been in Boston and you've been in the office and you despise working from home. So let's just go there. Tell me more about that. <laughs> So um, I am like so many people in the advancement profession, um, a person who loves people. And I have always uh, really enjoyed being part of an organization, part of a team, part of a group, um, and being able to have that energy and feed off of the ideas and the exchanges that we all have. Um, whenever I have the opportunity to um, work from home, like when there is a blizzard and we're stuck there or something like that, I have this idea that I'm going to be uh, incredibly productive. I'm going to have, you know, 30 phone calls and do a load of laundry while that's happening and maybe, uh, you know, straighten my closet while no one can see what it is that I'm doing. And it ends up that I do uh, absolutely nothing well in the day um, with wet laundry still stuck in the, uh, in the washing machine. Uh, two of the 40 calls I intended to make completed um, and a half uh, a half done pile of whatever it is I thought I was going to do while no one could see me. Um, add to that that um, I, like so many um, people, uh, had when my daughter graduated from uh, high school and went to college, downsized into the city, um, live in a fairly small condo uh, here in Boston where my husband was also working from home. Uh, our daughter came home for a period of time. And, and what I can tell you is three people uh, on Zoom calls uh, all at the same time is not a recipe for a happy family. I'm not unique in that. So the moment I had the opportunity to be back in the office, I grabbed it and I've been happily here uh, ever since. Thanks for the background and thanks for having uh, the bravery to have a contrarian view about the future of uh, remote everything. And, um, you know, I, I definitely can empathize. And I think, you know, there are certain moments, right? There are certain things for me at least where it's been, um, it's been more efficient, right? It's been great to be able to connect with people via Zoom who in the past might not have known what that was or been comfortable doing so. Uh, but there are definitely moments, especially with the team where it's just not the same. And I think about, you know, we used to have these um, all hands meetings uh, periodically, right? Or it could be a new product demo that our team would be doing. Um, and, you know, the, the clapping, the cheering, the camaraderie, and now all of that is conducted in large group Zoom meetings and it's, and it's silent and you get the chat box or, you know, the clapping hands on the window 
Um, but it certainly, you know, is not is not the same energy, um, which, you know, I think given the challenges of, of the year, it uh, it would be amazing to be able to experience, will be amazing to be able to experience soon. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I should also say, um, because the reason I've been able to be here um, in my office is because Northeastern University uh, is open for in-person instruction, for the residential experience, and more than uh, even the team, which I love, and I'm able to see many of them, of course, um, we have uh, lower density, and so not everyone is in the office all the time. Um, but to be able to walk out on campus and just draw the excitement from our students um, who are, you know, being so resilient and learning to um, deal with what it's like to be a college student uh, during a pandemic um, has has been an incredible and amazing um, experience for me, and I'm I'm so grateful to them for taking this leap and this, um, uh, you know, uh, having the confidence in uh, the institution. And so it really just kind of, it reinforces why it is great to be in um, academic uh, yeah. fundraising uh, as a profession. It's, it's an amazing experience. I definitely want to come back to that. But one of my favorite things to talk about with our guests is to understand your own education journey. And um, I, I had done some research in advance of the call. I know that you've got some family ties to New Orleans. We were just there um, earlier this week on our trip. And so uh, they were all gearing up for Mardi Gras or this year they're calling it Yardi Gras because of uh, the restrictions on the parades and so forth. Um, but I also read that you were a high school student who applied to one college and that was Boston University. And not only that, you were a high school student in Anaheim, California. And I'm just gonna go on the record and say, you're the only person from Anaheim, California ever to apply only to one college with that college being Boston University. So <laughs> with that setup, I cannot back that up with any data, but I, I, I stand by my position. Tell me a little bit more about your journey growing up and what led you to Boston University. Um, well, it, it's, it really, it's a strange journey, um, but I suppose everyone has uh, in their own in their own ways a, a journey that is completely unlike uh, anyone else's. My, um, my father is from Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, my mother is from Bloomington, Illinois. Um, they both were anxious to get out of uh, what for both of them were, you know, small towns. Uh, and so my father was at Tulane, my mother was at Sophie Newcomb, which was then a women's college, uh, now part of Tulane. And neither one of them had ever really, I mean, they'd never been in uh, Louisiana, they'd never been to New Orleans, they went to um, college sight unseen. And um, it was an interesting time, the, the mid 60s, uh, to be uh, in the South, but in a cosmopolitan city like New Orleans. And so uh, I was born there and spent some early years there as my father completed uh, medical school um, with the intention to go back to uh, Hawaii, ultimately to practice medicine. Um, he was by then married to my mother. Um, they happened to stop in Southern California uh, to do, he was doing his internship and residency there. Um, again, with the idea that he would then recross the Pacific Ocean to go back home. Um, but he just sort of stuck there. And so um, I tell people sometimes I'm a Southerner by birth, uh, a Californian by upbringing and a New Englander, I guess, by uh, by choice. Um, 
although now in January, it's, you know, one question is one's choice, but um, we did uh, live in Orange County. Um, I grew up in the shadow of the Matterhorn um, and Sleeping Beauty's Castle. My early career aspiration was to be a Disney princess. Um, I didn't realize, uh, you know, aside from, you know, having that job as a character, uh, as many of my uh, high school friends did while they were in high school and college, that wasn't actually something that you could do as a career for your whole life. Um, I was uh, also a very serious classical ballet dancer through most of my adolescence um, and had the idea that I might join a ballet company rather than go to college. Um, that didn't work out um, for a variety of reasons, um, probably ends up being for the best, but that is the reason I only applied to one college. It was a backup. I'd never been to Boston. Um, I arrived uh, at Boston University um, thinking that um, you know, every building would be dripping with ivy and it would just be this idyllic kind of uh, along the Charles River crew teams out uh, every, every day. I'd never experienced winter before. Uh, I had never seen snow till my freshman year of, of college, but I guess my parents sort of instilled in me this idea that, you know, just go for it, just jump in and, and do it. And, uh, you know, it'll either, either work out or, or not. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think I probably am the only person who has uh, gone to high school with the aspiration of um, being a Disney princess who only applied to one university and that university is Boston University. <laughs> Well, I got to ask, I mean, I think, so I played football at Brown University. I grew up in Iowa, and so I was used to kind of really harsh winters and so forth. And, um, but I had one teammate from Hawaii and then a bunch of teammates from Southern California. And I'll never forget some of our freshman and sophomore JV football experiences, just watching these guys so miserable. And uh, that's not easy, especially, you know, when it's not something you really had planned or that you were maybe mentally prepared for. So not just weather-wise, but culturally, New England's a different place as well. I mean, what was it like? Um, did you feel any kind of, I don't know, culture shock or, um, uh, you know, beyond the weather? Or did you did you feel great in the community? Oh, it was a complete culture shock, a complete culture shock. Um, especially I'd gone to a very small um, all-girls high school, Catholic school. Um, and so I knew everyone in the community. BU is a really big school, um, you know, draws students from everywhere. And so in the beginning, I think the hardest thing was to try to find um, my own niche, my own place, a place that I could um, connect into um, and feel that I was part of something beyond just um, my own studies. And I think about that a lot now when, you know, as I see new freshmen um, here coming from from all over the world. But um, I quickly fell in with the group of students who were aspiring journalists and joined the student newspaper. And that was kind of my my thing for the um, for the whole of my undergraduate uh, years. And the, the what was the what was the best story you covered? Uh, any stories that really stand out? from your time in the student newspaper? Um, well, you know, the, it's not a story per se, but it was the reason that I knew that I probably was not going to make a great journalist. Um, and it was, I had the opportunity to uh, interview the then president of BU, a notoriously um, uh, prickly and brilliant man uh, named John Silver, who was president at BU for, I think, more than 15 years. Uh, 
super intimidating guy. And I went in as, uh, you know, an aspiring reporter and asked him a question. Um, the question had to do with faculty unionization. I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, and I said something to the effect of President Silver, many of the faculty think, and he stopped me right there and he said, young lady, what does many of mean? You have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, you have not prepared adequately for this interview. I'm not going to answer this question. Well, a good journalist probably would have pursued the question, persisted. Um, he, he, you know, but he had me back on my heels and I thought I'm never going to make uh, an investigative reporter if I can't stand up to this president. And so it actually really kind of changed my whole career trajectory. Um, but clearly uh, the moment had an impact on me that I remember. Um, and uh, it was also something that stayed with me over the course of my career about not letting that initial moment uh, set you back uh, in the same way that it had to me as a, as a, as a student. And so um, it's a lesson that beyond changing my career course and maybe, you know, who knows what, have happened, what would have happened if I internalized the lesson earlier. Uh, I don't regret not being a journalist, although I have the utmost respect for what they do, especially now. Um, but it, it was a great lesson on um, being prepared but also not uh, not getting knocked off your game. And so you pivoted away from journalism, um, but not away from BU. Mm -hmm. And were able to find an entry level role working um, in more of an admissions uh, capacity. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Was that uh, a hard decision? I mean, even just staying in Boston, I do feel like I think of my 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 teammate from Hawaii and the other ones from Southern California. And guess what? They immediately went back to those places. Did you feel the draw um, back to Southern California or, or was it uh, more natural to stick around New England a little bit longer? Um, I did feel the draw uh, to go back to, to California, but um, at the same time, I felt this draw to stay in uh, higher education um, and even well, now looking back on it, I can explain it and feel, uh, you know, comfortable with it in a way that I didn't for um, much of the early part of my career. Um, but the truth is, I just loved being on a college campus, and so, uh, and I love young people. And so, to be in admissions was putting those two things together uh, again in a way that I didn't fully accept in the beginning. I kept thinking, this is what I'm going to do for a while until I figure out what I want to do. Um, and it was only really five plus, maybe seven years into my career, I gave myself permission to understand, no, this is where you want to be and this is what you want to do. It's not the temporary thing until you have the guts to go out into the real world. Um, and having that clarity early in your career that you love young people, that you love being on college campuses, I'm sure it allowed you to focus. And then it became more, what do you want to do? And, and, and how do you want the career to evolve? And you um, pivoted into advancement and you also made your way back uh, to Southern California. And I think one of the things that, that stands out for me about your background is that, you know, this is a sector where oftentimes, you know, tenure is not very long. There's a lot of turnover. Um, it's rare that you're able to grow uh, into leadership positions without 
bouncing from institution to institution. Um, and you're somebody who has done that twice, you know, two real significant, you know, 13, 14 year um, stints at both USC, which we'll talk about and Northeastern. Um, and then when I think about Boston University, you know, BU, Northeastern and USC have all been real growth stories at a time of challenges for the higher education sector. And I wonder if that's coincidental or if that's something that, um, you know, certainly BU, it was probably a different time and context and, and their growth has maybe been more um, in the 2000s, but looking at your time at USC, your time at Northeastern, really just remarkable growth stories against the backdrop of pressures for higher education. Um, tell me about that, along with your journey into advancement, the experience at USC during a time like that. Um, well, you're, you're absolutely right. They are incredible um, growth stories. And one of the reasons that I have you know, stayed as long as I have at Northeastern and stayed as long as I did at, at USC, um, when I went to um, USC, it was in um, the context of admissions, you know, enrollment, uh, and that was the, the job that I had. But it was a place at the time that was changing rapidly and that had a, um, it had an openness to people taking on roles kind of outside of the, you know, specific job title that they had. And so uh, I, I did kind of a little bit of a lot of things uh, when I was there. I did admissions work. Um, I, for a while, served as the ombudsperson, uh, believe it or not, for the Liberal Arts College, which meant I did things like um, uh, manage grade appeal, the grade appeal process, and uh, you know things that I had no experience and probably no business doing. Uh, but I just did it, and nobody seemed to object to. Uh, someone, you know, raising their hand and saying, yes, I'll do it and stepping in um, to do it. So I then, um, after uh, working in undergraduate admissions, I um, started working in and ultimately ran the undergraduate advising center for the liberal arts uh, college, now named the Dorenseif College of Letters, Arts and Sciences. Um, and I loved it uh, because it was, there were so many aspects of it. I feel like at USC, I had three almost distinctly different careers, one in admissions, one in undergraduate advising, and then one in advancement. So even though I was at the same uh, university, it was like having three different jobs and progressing yeah. in, the, in the career there. Can I just ask you about that? Because I feel like, you know, look, there are silos on college campuses and distinct pockets of leadership and distinct strategies. But when we look at enrollment, which we don't spend much time in at Ever True, right? We're really focused on advancement. But, you know, what is enrollment? It is about, um, you know, identifying your target market, telling your story, standing out, attracting those applicants, converting them, and then bringing them on as students. And then I think about student success. What is it? It's about uh, retention. Uh, and, and growth during their time here, right? And, and helping them succeed. And then advancement, I feel like it's very similar, right? Now it's a different market and a different mission, a different maybe um, um, a way of approaching people, but ultimately it's about acquisition, retention and growth across the board. And I'm curious when you look, now the difference being, sometimes I think one of the challenges of the advancement sector is 
one, our communities are massive and our teams are relatively small. And we have 50 years of a life cycle to engage people. Whereas enrollment, we've got about nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, and every year the clock starts uh, at zero again. So I've always um, admired the enrollment world, especially because the pace is so much different than advancement. And you never have any question at the end of the year of how you really did, right? There was less kind of fuzzy, right. well, we've got a huge commitment in the pipeline and it's gonna close in two years and the cash will be recognized in five years and whatever it may be. It's just, did we win or not? And, and what was the score? And I think student success uh, has obviously, and um, you know, maybe it was called advising then, I think now it's become student success. That's evolved a lot. But do you take any lessons from either of those areas where most advancement leaders haven't probably worked? Oh, you're absolutely right. And, um, and, uh, and I do, I, I've always felt very fortunate that I had the opportunity to work with what I sort of think about as the, the full life cycle of the institution from um, students. And I'd include parents here, you know, thinking about, uh, do I see myself here? Um, uh, am, uh, you know, you can't divorce your undergraduate institution, right? Once you've graduated from there, that degree and that yep. idea that affinity stays with you, um, you know, for a lifetime. So it's a big, it's a big decision and a big uh, commitment. Now, obviously, uh, you know, people transfer, or, you know, people leave for whatever reason, but um, being able to be a support and a catalyst and, um, uh, you know, having the privilege of being part of that student and family's journey for me um, is very much um, aligned with what it's like to be part of a prospective philanthropist or a donors or an alumnus yeah. or alumna journey and connectivity um, back to the institution. So, um, so yes, I, I, I think that the preparation uh, that that gave me for being in advancement um, absolutely uh, shaped and, um, and has, you know, kind of propelled the way that I look at the advancement work that um, that we do. And it's probably the reason that I've stayed at two places as long as I, I have, because I kind of like to see it through, <laughs> you yeah. know, sort of, it, you, you get the opportunity to be part of uh, the individual stories, but you also yeah. get to be part of institutional stories. Are there any students um, that you recall working with? And I'm sure it had to be fulfilling not only to see them you know, succeed at school, but I'm sure in, in some circumstances and now with Facebook and LinkedIn and different platforms that you're probably able to stay in touch with people who in the past, it would have been maybe harder, or you would have lost track of, but, you know, I've been fortunate to serve as a mentor for the Brown Football Association for over 15 years now. And to see what some of the people are doing who, you know, I reviewed their resume in 2006 and to see kind of where they are now. I mean, that as it's one of those things where it feels good in the moment and it compounds over time. And I'm just curious if you have any specific individuals where you feel like, wow, I really made a big impact for them, whether it was by way of helping them get access to higher education in the first place or, you know, guidance and coaching you might've provided them. You know, it's hard to single out just one and I'll, I'll step back a minute and say that when, when I was at Boston University, uh, there were a number of administrators who weren't formal advisors. They were just people who took an interest um, in me and asked, you know, how are you doing? You know, what are you interested in? You know, do you have a, mm -hmm. do you have a job? Um, who uh, 
took me and introduced me to people who might help me get that first job. And so I've always, you know, I, I was a formal advisor at one point who knew the catalog backwards and forwards. Um, but I've always loved that piece of it. And what I've always tried to remind myself is you can do this in a formal way. Um, you can do it, you know, with the title of mentor, um, but just caring about uh, as many individual students as you can, can make a difference uh, to their confidence and the way that they approach their, um, their studies and the way they approach their careers afterwards. So um, it's been, it is the most rewarding part and the reason I love being on a college campus. Um, but there are definitely, you know, some students who have gone on to that we have a group um, of young global leaders. We started that group um, not that long ago. So they are genuinely young <laughs> um, people all, you know, one to seven years out of, um, out of Northeastern. And, you know, what I, the stories that I think are, really right now most fulfilling to me are not even the ones of individual success, but watching them create companies together and do things together and keep their network and affinity going. Um, that's something that I'm almost as moved by and as proud of as any individual success yeah. story, because it, it means that what we're doing um, has, it, it has, it's just, it's sustainable. It has um, a lasting power to uh, make a difference in how students are supported once they are no longer here. And it sounds like your experience at BU, um, it was sort of that that randomness and, and the wonderful nature of a college campus where those random interactions can um, happen and then they can propel somebody to literally their entire career path, their entire life. I had those same, I'm thinking of the exact people, those exact random moments that um, really propelled me um, early in my career. But I feel like one of the things about Northeastern and maybe one of the critiques of higher education where, where Northeastern's really excelled is we can't let it be so random. We can't just hope that that advisor, informal, formal mentor relationship happens to help Diane or Brent find their way and move forward. We've got to create systems. We've got to commit to it. We've got to um, really take it to the next level and so I think so much of what you just described um, as being somewhat random in your journey and certainly in mine is, is a process, a playbook, and a system that has allowed Northeastern to really stand out um, among uh, a very specific echelon of, of uh, institutions. Right. I think that experience, experiential education, which is rooted in you know, what we call co-op um, and that um, that connectivity that our students uh, have with uh, the world outside of the campus, you know, walls is part of what has really enshrined that here as, as a value. And so um, it becomes, you know, if, if you have to always be uh, blending that classroom experience um, with a work experience, with a real world experience, um, and then bringing that back to the classroom, the whole ethos of the place has to be um, very personalized, very customized, and very open to that back and forth um, influence. We, we can't ever sit in our ivory tower and think that, you know, we have all the solutions to the world's problems because our students walk outside of, um, you know, the campus, uh, the, the campus boundaries and, you know, 
they know more than we do a lot of times about where professions are going, uh, where technology is going, where the world's going. And uh, I can remember um, a student uh, saying to me after coming back from his co-op job somewhere, you know, um, uh, Northeastern has the one of the best computer science programs. It's just great. And yet you blast out um, the kinds of activities or, you know, uh, clubs or whatever to the whole world. Um, why can't you customize that? You know what we're studying. You know what kinds of things we like. You know, why aren't you using AI and, and all of that to, uh, to be more targeted? And I was like, wow, <laughs> yep. this kid's way ahead of me. What is it like as an advancement leader? I know you're well-networked uh, uh, in, your, in your peer group as well, but it's got to be pretty powerful when you have such a distinctive value proposition from a student experience perspective when you're making the case to donors. Because I think sometimes there, you know, it can be an uphill battle if you don't have that differentiated of an offering, which is something that Northeastern's had for a long time. Does it make you feel more confident with donors? I mean, how does that um, support your team in being able to inspire people? Because it's not like Northeastern's had the you know, the, the highest alumni participation rate historically, or that it was always um, recognized in the way that it's been recognized now, nor was USC, frankly, during the growth period that you were there. So um, uh, I guess my question is just how important is that distinct value proposition in today's landscape to really inspire philanthropists to support you all and your mission relative to other things in their communities? Well, that's a great point, and I think it's it's absolutely critical. I think we are seeing, um, even at institutions with great traditions of um, alumni support, um, I think that uh, increasingly donors and certainly younger generations of donors are looking um, to understand what kind of impact they're going to have. Uh, there are so many needs. Um, you know, of our institutions, but also of the nation, of the world. And I think people are very generous and they have to make choices about where they're going to be directing their philanthropy, where they're going to be directing their energy and their time. So if you don't have a distinctive, uh, you know, value proposition, as you said, if you don't really understand the mission um, and why your, um, your university, this particular faculty member, that particular program are you know, well positioned to, um, to advance that, uh, I think it's very hard. I think the days of uh, alumni giving just because they're grateful for the experience they had, um, I, I think that is diminishing. Um, not that that won't always be an important part of um, what we seek and what we do as you know, academic uh, institutional fundraisers. Um, but I, we really, I think are seeing a trend um, that we are going to need to go beyond that. Um, and that means really understanding what our institutions uniquely do. And I think, yes, I mean, one of the reasons I'm at Northeastern is that I really believe in its um, unique uh, and distinctive and differentiated place among uh, colleges and universities in the country. But I think pretty much, you know, every college and university can, has that, or they wouldn't attract students, uh, they wouldn't attract faculty, they wouldn't continue to exist. So um, at least for our team, it's, you know, constantly hammering on the three questions we always want to answer for ourselves. Why Northeastern? 
why me and why now? One of the things that we're hearing a lot about that you were just hinting at is um, donors want to understand the direct impact of their work. And it doesn't mean just a million dollar donor, right? A thousand dollar donor. I know that if I give a hundred bucks to that GoFundMe, exactly who it supports, why it supports, that they're going to get it. And we had a really interesting conversation on a podcast episode that we recently published called uh, with uh, Dr. Mark Barnes, uh, who runs Advancement at Dillard University in New Orleans. And Dr. Barnes was just telling us that they had such a poor alumni participation rate, 4% alumni participation, but they understood that there was this real challenge that was stopping students from graduating, which was there was a big group of students who literally were running out of money, who couldn't pay their outstanding balances, wouldn't get a degree, wouldn't walk. And that has all kinds of negative repercussions because then your retention rate and all of these other things, it creates this downward cycle. And so in his case, he said, we just went and, and ran after that problem, created a program, they called it SAFE. And they went out and sold that vision to alumni, which was, hey, Brent, this check will literally help that student graduate. But what was really neat is that's budget relieving. It's impact driven, but -hmm. it's budget relieving. And I think that's where there's always been this struggle of, we'll give to the annual fund because it keeps the lights on is not nearly as exciting as help these students literally walk the stage. And so how we walk that line around impact while recognizing that there are um, budget relieving objections or objectives that you all uh, need to achieve is I think just so critical. Do you have stories like that or are there similar, um, I don't know, ideas that you've considered or heard from your peers? Because I feel like this is such an area of growth for the sector. No, I think you're absolutely right. And um, you know, I, my, my CFO would love for every dollar to be uh, completely unrestricted um, in, in, you know, just go to that unrestricted annual fund. But um, as you said, increasingly donors at all levels, um, especially I'm finding, you know, uh, this, uh, uh, this younger generation of donors are wanting to understand that impact. And I think it is um, somewhat driven by things like, you know, GoFundMe. Um, we had a, a wonderful um, person who uh, leads an organization called Donors Choose. Um, uh, you're you're uh, familiar with it talk about how it is um, that they, uh, you know, appeal uh, to people to support um, primarily teachers in the needs that they have and the satisfaction that someone gets when they're able to um, either complete a project, um, you know, by their gift, you know, now this person has the X amount of dollars they need to do something really specific. and we took that to heart. And um, even with our senior class um, you know, gift project, we allow students to direct their gifts and they are not large dollars. And in some cases, the you know, administrative cost of doing this uh, probably is greater than um, the dollar amount of the gift that's given. Um, but I, I believe uh, to your point that the more that people understand how they're giving, how their philanthropy makes an immediate um, or direct impact on something they care about, uh, the better that we will be able to um, uh, really continue to connect with these upcoming generations of donors. Yeah, and look, I think the, the reason the sector 
generates 50 billion a year in philanthropy is largely because we connect donors with their specific interests and the impact they wanna make in a highly restricted manner. Just because there are more zeros on the gift doesn't mean that emotionally, it's not the same for everybody else. And I think that sort of tension with the CFOs of the world is something we're gonna to have to continue to, to navigate. Cause I believe, especially in the upper uh, middle of the giving pyramid, the middle of the giving pyramid, there's so much more that we could unlock um, if we could make more of that direct impact and connection clear. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And I think that we will see that more and more, um, you know, as, as, as the uh, profession goes forward and as our institutions move forward and um, really have to demonstrate, I think a lot, a lot of the large gifts, you know, we saw the, um, the very large um, gift that Mackenzie Scott did, no restrictions, but I think that we're also seeing a lot of these mega donors uh, feel that they come out of places that are solution creating and they yes. want to make sure that uh, their gifts, they're not giving necessarily to big endowments and they, they want to make sure that their philanthropy is solution creating and they'll be very sort of metric driven and transparency demanding about how right. that works. Show me the financial model, just like any <laughs> other investment that I've evaluated throughout my career, right? Um, well, I want to um, start to wrap up here, but I know that you're really passionate about the Women Who Empower program. And I just want to talk a little bit about the genesis of that um, and what stands out and maybe any lessons um, that you take from that that our listeners might benefit from. So the genesis of our Women Who Empower initiative, um, it really started um, with the support of some of our board members um, who wanted to help us create um, more specific and intentional, we talked about intentionality a few minutes ago, pipelines for, um, for women uh, to be growing their leadership um, within the um, ranks of our you know, future board members, um, members of dean's councils, et cetera. We just, um, like most places, um, our, our numbers of women uh, and people of color and our pipelines need to be way more robust. And so the question was, how, how can we be intentional about growing this? Uh, and it just sort of blossomed from there. And I was uh, really inspired by um, some uh, mothers, some women who um, were engaged in the Northeastern community and invited me to be part of, um, of some programs that were like that um, for, uh, for the corporate world. And I came back to campus and I said to our president, uh, you know, this was really fantastic. I just went to this two day um, program where I heard from uh, just this huge spectrum of really successful people. It happens to be they were all women. And what they did though was talk about their stories and their industries. And I wanna create something like that on campus. And, you know, one of the things, again, that I like about uh, being at this institution so much is it allowed me, the chief advancement officer, to go off and build this initiative that probably in most places would not come out of an advancement operation, um, but was um, supported and encouraged because I was passionate about doing it. And it's really grown then over the past six or seven years from um, a series of events uh, like that, although we still have those even virtually where we bring in some really just uh, amazing uh, leaders across a spectrum of disciplines and industries um, to an actual 
a mentoring network, um, a marketplace uh, that supports our um, women entrepreneurs. Um, and um, we've started a student organization out of it, um, the Women's Interdisciplinary Society of Entrepreneurship. Um, so it, it continues to grow um, organically. And um, the thing that I think is most um, heartening for me is that I'm involved now in a fairly small part of it, spectrum of it, because there's just so much activity going on. So I think one of the lessons is um, if you're passionate about, about something, pursue it. Uh, I think in most, um, hopefully in most circumstances, uh, because we work at the kinds of institutions that love innovation um, and are all about education and growth, um, take it on and see where it goes and others will be excited to, uh, to join and then lead themselves. I love it. Uh, and it's so important and such a great example of um, Northeastern living its mission, not just in the context of student experience, but employee experience and in, in your own experience. Um, I did wanna just uh, start to conclude with one um, curveball question, which is what is one thing we should all know about 19th century British history that we don't <laughs> probably appreciate? Um, because my understanding is that was your master's degree. Yes, yes. Mid-advancement mid career, which you don't always see those two things intersect. So what should we know? Uh, I think you should know that our whole uh, notion of time um, comes out of the industrial revolution, that it isn't uh, a kind of a fixed thing that always and forever was viewed in the same way. Um, so now when you uh, look at your clock and you think about time, um, you will always know that uh, it, it doesn't come out of the medieval period, <laughs> it doesn't come from uh, the 20th century, but in fact uh, it is, and, and why do I think that's important to know? Because I think um, as professionals, we always ought to be challenging our own assumptions about something that we believe to be uh, fixed and um, just an immutable fact. Um, and so for me, that always reminds me that, you know, disrupt your own thinking. Sometimes it's hard, but it's good for you. I love it. Well, as we cross from the central time zone into the <laughs> eastern time zone later today, I will definitely keep that top of mind. Um, one last question. I know uh, you mentioned even some of our guests that we've um, hosted uh, previously on the podcast are people you uh, really respect in the sector. I mean, that is one of the really neat um, aspects of the advancement space is just how connected, how much sharing happens. Um, you know, where do you turn to for community in this space? And who are some of the leaders that maybe you feel like you've grown up with as, as a leader um, in this space? Well, it, so many great people, um, as you said, in this profession, because I think it is a profession that attracts people who um, are really committed and who care about, um, they care about people um, and they care about education and, and the kind of research that um, can make a difference in the world. Um, you know, I mentioned as um, we were preparing to come on, um, my friend Jim Hudson from Boston College, who I think is one of the great um, great advancement leaders. And he's a person that I call, um, sometimes I'll say, don't tell anyone I'm calling you with this question. <laughs> um, Can I ask you why you feel that way? Because you do interface with a lot of people and Jim does come up, but what is it specifically that, that you've really um, 
I don't know, admired about his, his friendship and collaboration? Um, not only has Jim um, uh, built an, just a tremendously uh, great program at Boston College, um, he is open and generous with his time, with his wisdom, with his insights. Um, and uh, he's just someone that no matter how busy he is, when you have a thorny problem, um, he's happy to um, puzzle it out with you. And, um, you know, the, there's, there are others as well, but, but Jim stands out to me uh, in particular because when I first um, came to Northeastern as the, uh, you know, as the chief advancement officer, um, not just one of the leaders, um, yeah. you know, he was a person I was able to say, I'm not really sure I fully understand what I'm doing. And, um, you know, that ability to be vulnerable and open uh, I think is something that I appreciated in my conversations with him. And I, I would say, um, you know, if I was giving advice to, uh, to others um, to never be afraid to ask, because I do think our, uh, the advancement leaders that I interact with are so open to sharing uh, their successes, their insecurities, their uncertainties, as well as advice for what's worked um, in their own contexts and situations. Really, really good concluding thoughts. If people who are listening do want to get in touch or want to reach out, Diane, I know you're on uh, Twitter. I know you're on LinkedIn. Is there a, a preferred um, medium to stay in touch? Um, I like LinkedIn, but I I like the just straight up good old fashioned email. It's the Fair thing enough. that I know is going to land in my inbox and I'm going to see it. Well, you can all uh, look Diane up and uh, find her email address. Um, feel free to reach out. But um, thank you for sharing your journey and your optimism um, with all of us and also a window into a good old-fashioned office where you can send good old-fashioned emails. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been so much fun, Brent. I really appreciate your, uh, your time and uh, I hope that people will reach out um, because I'm really, I'm really grateful for the community that you're creating here. Uh, I think it's a really important and sustaining one. Thanks, Diane. Cheers. All right, bye-bye.